This is Peace Talks Radio, the series on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution. If you had lost a loved one in one of the terrorist attacks of September 11, 2001, how would you have responded? This grief filled me. I had so much anger in me. I just felt we should strike out at someone. Quickly after that, in days, I realized that I had uh, allowed some very primitive feelings to rise up in me that went against how I really felt about violence and about political violence in particular. Would it be possible for you to turn such deep grief into action for peace and nonviolence? As Martin Luther King says, wars are poor chisels for carving out peaceful tomorrows. And, And that's the name of our group. Today on Peace Talks Radio... We'll talk with three members of 9-11 Families for Peaceful Tomorrows about their efforts to transform their loss and sorrow into a more peaceful world. This is Peace Talks Radio, a series on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution. On our program, we explore conflict scenarios in our daily lives and talk with folks who have ideas about how to resolve those conflicts nonviolently. We also spotlight the work of peacemakers around the globe and throughout history. Today, we talk with three people who faced the personal turmoil of losing a family member in the terrorist attacks on New York's World Trade Center September 11, 2001. They each eventually found their way to an organization called 9-11 Families for Peaceful Tomorrows, It was founded by family members of those killed on September 11th who have worked to develop and advocate nonviolent options in pursuit of justice. The organization's mission statement acknowledges their common experience with all those affected by violence throughout the world and makes a commitment to breaking the cycle of violence. Delegations from the organization appear at public actions for peace. Some of them write articles, some make public speeches for peace, and others in the organization have pursued various independent actions they feel contribute to a safer and more peaceful world. Today we'll hear from retired teacher Bruce Wallace, whose nephew Mitch, an emergency medical technician, was killed in New York on September 11th. Also Ann Mulderry, whose son Stephen was at his job at the World Trade Center and died that day as well. And we'll visit with Terry K. Rockefeller, a documentary filmmaker whose work is often seen on PBS. Her sister, Laura, was killed when she was helping to run a conference that was meeting in the World Trade Center that day. Later in our program, each of our guests will tell the moving stories of that day and will remember their family member who died as a result of the terrorist actions. But we wanted to begin by asking each of our guests about the process that took them from profound personal grief to action for peace. First, Terry K. Rockefeller who spoke to Carol Boss. In the, in the immediate days after September 11th, um, through the sort of shock and haze of grief and horror, the one thing I was really clear about, I thought about my daughters um, and how I didn't want the world that they grew up in to be as violent a place as the one we were living in now. And I think that um, it was almost immediate, this sense that um, every act of violence, people face a choice to either end the violence or to perpetuate it. And what I hoped for and believed in was that there could be some kind of international legal proceeding that both brought out the truth of 9-11 and 
and also did move an entire world community to think about um, how to how to rebuild uh, in the in the wake of this disaster. So Bruce Wallace in Brooklyn, New York, during your grieving process for your nephew Mitch following 9-11, do you recall thinking at that time about how the U.S. should respond to the attacks? Yeah. um, Right after 9-11, I was uh, filled with grief for the loss of my nephew. I was a witness on the street uh, to the to the towers falling, uh, to thousands of people dying. This grief filled me. I had so much anger in me. I just felt we should strike out at someone. Quickly after that, in days, I realized that I had uh, allowed some very primitive feelings to rise up in me that went against how I really felt about violence and about political violence in particular. And I don't think I battled to get rid of it. I think as the days passed and we realized that, you know, at first we learned that Mitch was uh, missing. And then as the days passed, this feeling transformed itself. I didn't work to get rid of my feelings of anger. I didn't struggle to get rid of my feelings of grief. I think these feelings are still within me. But what I came to was this much stronger feeling that there's another way, that there doesn't have to be violent response to violence, that violence only begets more violence. It just was so obvious to me. Um, I've been a, a, a pro-peace person, an anti-violence person for much of my life. Uh, I was very active in struggling against uh, our occupation of Vietnam. Uh, This is part of my history. It was only natural for me to return to this attitude of nonviolence. Anne Mulderry, in the aftermath of September 11th, you were focused on your family and you have a large family, as you all grieve the loss of your son, Stephen. And then you began to speak out publicly and talked about your own certainty that a violent response was not the answer. And it seems like that's something you have long understood. And I was wondering when you began to understand that in your life. Well, I think that's a wonderful question, and it's a a wonderful opportunity for me to reflect on my journey from wanting to solve every problem immediately and with great finality and great, great certainty. And often, you know, that would be in a violent way. You know, the temptation to kill the problem exists for all of us, I believe. And it takes a maturing to see that it doesn't work. And I say to people who who really smile at my feeling that there are ways to end problems without violence. I say to them, has violence worked? Does it happen that when you try to kill the problem, the problem is killed? Or does history tell us that the problem, the killing effort, is only sowing dragon's teeth that in multitudes will come back? 
I immediately after my, as a mother of eight children, of course, there's a tendency to violence. There's a tendency to rule by fiat, you know, do what I say because I'm the mother. (laughs) And resisting that is critically important if there's going to be a healthy family situation. And so I've had plenty of practice resisting the violent tendencies that exist and I think exist in everyone. And I firmly support every effort to educate people to the wisdom of not using violence to solve their problems. And I do believe that people can be educated. I do believe I have been educated, educated by models in my life, by parents who didn't use violence, educated by instances of watching when violence did occur. So do you have... Have any words that you can share with listeners about um, what it takes to turn grief into action for peace? Well, I think that for me, I'm not a terribly active person. And I have to push through my own really reluctance to be, to speak as a leader. And I'm very much more comfortable if I can join with others. And that enables, it strengthens me. It allows me to add my voice to others and then to be heard. Um, And it prompts me to think more because I'm inspired by others. I've been inspired this morning by listening to Terry and Bruce. I know Terry and Bruce. I I have intimate awareness of their commitment and of their achievements in this work, and yet I am inspired all over again. I feel that that would be my recommendation to anyone who felt helpless. And I don't even think anger's the problem. I mean, I would call rage the problem for me. I fear my own rage, and I think it's legitimate to be afraid of the rage that can be unleashed when terrible injustice is done. So you do work so that terrible injustice won't create rage. Um, One of the things I'll live with for all of my life is the terrible, terrible sorrow that after, in the aftermath of September 11th, I feel the world was pregnant with peace a new peace could have been born that the world had never known because there was so much suffering expressed by the whole world for what had happened to our loved ones in New York City. If we had had a leader who could have taken that moment and done something that the world had never seen before by a power, It would have been a turning point in history, and it was missed. It was missed because the people in charge of the power in our country, the elected people, even if it was an iffy election, they were capable of doing what they wanted to do, and what they wanted was war. I just the other day came across a quote by Thomas Mann, and it saddens me to know that so many wise voices have spoken to us in the past and they haven't been heard. But he said, war is only a cowardly escape from the problems of peace. 
And I believe that's true for all violence. Violence is a cowardly escape from the problem of trying to work things out. And as far as enemies and who we view as the cause of our troubles, I'll tell this little story because it was one of the first instances of my being brave enough to speak my mind after my son's death. And I spoke my mind to a truly treasured person who came to me and said, what they have done to your son is so terrible, and I know they are in hell. And I loved this person who said those words to me, and I knew it was an attempt to comfort me. It was a desire to comfort me. And I said to him, all I can say is that my darling son, Stephen, has gone to another world in the company of the people who did this. And all I can see is him saying to them, as I heard him say to his brothers on the basketball court, what'd you do that for when somebody had done something they shouldn't have done? I don't know how to explain my faith that that is the case, but I do believe that we all share in the guilt of the violent solutions that are affected in our lifetime. And I believe we can all share in the healing and peace if we will struggle. As Martin Luther said, uh, Martin Luther King said, uh, and that's the name of our group, wars are poor chisels for carving out peaceful tomorrows. If you think you can make a peaceful tomorrow with a war, you're a foolish person. So, Anne, it was uh, back in March of 2002 that you learned of the group September 11th Families for Peaceful Tomorrows. I, I read somewhere that you saw a press release that was sent to you by email. Do you recall the words that spoke really loud and clear to you? Well, it was the name of the group that immediately attracted me. It was a news release, and it was uh, a perhaps a 250-word news release. It was a lengthy statement of the group's commitments. And the title of that they, the name they had chosen for themselves immediately struck me. And as I read through the news release and as they reiterated the arguments that I had formulated in my own mind, I thought I could have written this news release. There isn't a word I do not agree with. And I immediately contacted those people. And do you remember some of those words? Well, it was, you know, pretty much what we've talked about, mm -hmm. that violence begets violence, that war begets war, that there are other ways, that there hadn't been an attempt to solve this with international law. There was a heavy emphasis on the, um, ignoring, the ignoring of international law and the United Nations in the news release, and it was all compelling. Terry, were you a part of the organization at the very beginning? How, how was that founded? The organization started um, when a group of people met on a, on a peace march that went from Washington, D.C., from the Pentagon to the World Trade Center, uh, stopping along the way and speaking to communities that in, in between Washington and New York about the potential for not responding with violence, but, but thinking about legal and nonviolent alternatives to, to addressing uh, this tragedy. And the folks who got together on that march, I was not on that march, um, who were family members, got together at the end of the march in New York and actually wrote down the seven points that became the action plan for Peaceful Tomorrows. 
Then four of those people traveled along with a program called Global Exchange to Afghanistan. Um, we had, we'd hoped, those people had hoped to prevent the bombing of Afghanistan. But in January of 2002, when uh, the first major bombing campaign had ended, uh, four members, four people who ultimately became members of Peaceful Tomorrows, um, went to Afghanistan to meet with the civilian um, population and to talk to them about how they had not wanted, as as Bruce has used the word, collateral damage, how, how they had not wanted innocent civilians to pay a price for something that it was not their government that had done this. It was terrorists who were living in their midst. And so I found out about these people who had gone to Afghanistan uh, on the Internet and not knowing about the march that they had been on together. Um, when I found out, I thought, these are the kind of human beings who can support me. I thought about, um, I'd had a, a really heartbreaking experience, not unlike Anne's, I think, when, when someone just said the wrong thing to me. I remember walking across the driveway to tell my neighbors that my sister had been murdered. And this wonderful old man who's, who's, who'd been kind to my children uh, turned to me and he said, well, don't you worry. We're going to get those bastards. And I didn't know. I just, my mouth dropped open and I shook my head and I just had to walk away from him. I didn't know how to deal with someone who wanted me to be taking my pain and my sorrow and turning it to grief, to, to violence. So when I found out about these four people who had gone to Afghanistan, I just, I, I made any, every effort to find out who they were and, uh, you know, quickly got, got linked up with them. We'll have more from our guests, all members of an organization called 9-11 Families for Peaceful Tomorrows, after this short break. This is Peace Talks Radio, a series on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution. Visit us online at peacetalksradio.com. And do stay tuned. I'm Paul Ingalls, and this is Peace Talks Radio, the series on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution. You can contribute to keep these shows on the radio and on the web by visiting us at peacetalksradio.com. Today we're visiting with people who are part of an organization made up of some of the family members of those killed in the terrorist attacks of 9-11. The organization is 9-11 Families for Peaceful Tomorrows. Among other things, it advocates for a multilateral collaborative effort to bring those responsible for the 2001 attacks to justice in accordance with the principles of international law. The organization supports nonviolent solutions to that challenge and to all forms of conflict. 
Our guests are Bruce Wallace, Anne Mulderry, and Terry K. Rockefeller. All lost loved ones on that day, and all will tell their individual stories later in our program. Right now, again, here's our host, Carol Boss. So, Terry Rockefeller, I, I read a letter that you wrote, which was published in the Boston Globe last summer, commenting on the death of El Zarqawi, and he became known after uh, being blamed by the U.S. for a series of bombings and attacks, and and was believed to have led the group, which allegedly later became al-Qaeda in Iraq. And in June of last year, the U.S. Air Force uh, dropped bombs on a house where he was, and, of course, he was killed. And you acknowledge that while he was a cruel, hateful, and violent man, you cannot celebrate his killing as a victory. I was hoping you would talk to us about your thinking on that. I think that to hear that someone has been found and targeted and and killed by military action for me was a real sense of having a process that that I felt I needed truncated um, all I can say is that that my need to to reach out and find nonviolent means means to address 911 was was instantaneous what I was lacking was any community uh, in which in which I could function because so much of, of America was responding with notions of, of bombing Afghanistan and then in a way that I think has been totally, um, totally, totally a misuse of 9-11, obviously, then going on and attacking Iraq. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and you know, I can go into this in, in greater detail, but, but a, we had a Peaceful Tomorrow's delegation that went to Iraq in advance of America's invasion and occupation. And what we found when we talked to university professors or school teachers or doctors or or just moms and dads in Iraq was a fear that they understood terrorism in their part of the world, and they really feared that terrorism would grow in the wake of an invasion. And my sense is that in many ways that has come to be true. And so, you know, again, when I hear that we've kind of helped grow terrorists around the world by creating more violence and by creating uh, a climate in which they can recruit terrorists, um, I don't take any uh, – there's just no no solace in in – hearing that, that someone who's been able to gather terrorists has been killed because I just imagine that right. the people who are following him right. uh, may take that as, as grounds for yet more more violence. I would like you also to talk about your appearance along with a number of other 9-11 family members at the trial of Zacharias Musawe. You were present to testify for the defense in the punishment phase of his trial. And let me remind listeners that he was the he is the French citizen of Moroccan descent who was convi- convicted of conspiring to kill Americans as part of um, the S- September 11th terrorist attacks. In a statement you made in response to the jury's decision to sentence him to life in prison, you expressed your relief that he wasn't sentenced to death. And I would guess that um, that may be controversial to a lot of people. People may be astonished at this. Um, how individuals such as yourself, despite the personal tragedy of losing a family member on 9-11, could speak in defense of a man who was implicated in these attacks. And I was wondering from a very personal perspective how you were able to reach this point, 
Was it an evolutionary process for you? My decision to testify came after I wrote a letter to the judge who then passed the, the letter on to the defense team. As soon as I heard that, that Masawi had pled guilty, I wrote to her saying that I was an opponent of the death penalty in all cases and that I couldn't live with my commitment to abolishing the death penalty if if I let an event like my sister's murder on 9-11 change that profound belief. I I thought, and I feel still, that one of the ways in which we lose to violence and to terrorism is if, is if they're their effect is to undermine to undermine our 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 values um, one of the things that that I think has September eleventh families for peaceful tomorrows has really helped me do has been to hold on to those values because I've found a community of other people who are like minded and together we've been able to do that i I, I wrote to the judge, and the judge responded by sending the letter to the defense team, and they contacted me and a number of other September 11th uh, family members. And and we were able to go and, just by our presence, uh, assert that we were not particularly looking for the ultimate um, ultimate you know vindictive act of, of capital punishment. Um, it was, I mean, I have to say, I have profound questions about Zacharias Musawi's pleading guilty. Um, I think he's a disturbed man, and I think that um, he he had no confidence in the American legal system, and I do think he wanted to martyr himself. Um, but for me, it was a matter of feeling strong in my values and saying I wouldn't let 9-11... Um, take away from me the hope that I have that our country will abolish the death penalty and join join nations like South Africa, join nations like the nations of, of the European Union, who have just decided that there is every possibility of justice and every possibility of living together in a secure society without having to have a state that kills criminals. Well, right after 9-11, following that, did you at all feel your long-held values waver at all? Were there there those moments where you struggled knowing those values of yours, long being an opponent to the death penalty? I think the struggle was a struggle of profound fear, Um, just profound fear that, that the country had come to an abyss and I didn't know which our country had come to an abyss and I didn't know which way it was going. Uh, I have to say, I'm not comforted by the course our country has taken over the years. Um, I am. I, I grieve daily for the people in Iraq and the people in Afghanistan, the civilians who've suffered because we chose to respond to 9/11 with military action. Um, we chose to to think that um, going into Afghanistan bombing sites where we felt we had intelligence um, that that Al-Qaeda members were there, that 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 would actually wipe out Al-Qaeda. What we've found out is that we've, in many ways, destabilized a country. And and the news today is that, you know, Afghanistan's in as 
tumultuous a state as it was in before 9-11. Uh, our, our invasion and occupation of Iraq, I, I maintain, has nothing to do with actually fighting the terrorists who were responsible for 9-11, but it, it's, it's a tragedy of monumental proportions. So I struggled with how to find a way in a community in which my values would not be would not be um, labeled as 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 foolish or insane, um, and and that's what September 11th Families for Peaceful Tomorrows has been for me. It's mm-hmm. been a community in which we support each other, and and more than that, we're searching for new solutions. That's Terry K. Rockefeller, and now Bruce Wallace, whose nephew Mitch died in New York on 9/11. He says he had to find something to do with his feelings. I took this energy and uh, began to work down at Ground Zero feeding the rescue workers and the recovery workers and did that for several months and then began to try and understand this energy that filled me. And shortly before the uh, invasion and occupation of Iraq, I found Peaceful Tomorrows on the Internet. And something on the website said something about transforming grief into works for peace. And it seemed to fit with how I felt and joined uh, Peaceful Tomorrows. At first, uh, as a very quiet lurker in the background, watching how each of these members who had been directly affected uh, by this uh, murderous day had found some work to do to make the world more peaceful. And I searched for my own work and began doing a series of workshops in high schools called Putting a Human Face on Collateral Damage. It always bothered me that some of the newspapers referred to Mitch Wallace as collateral damage and not a murdered young man. And so I began to speak to high school students and some college students about the horrendous price that innocent civilians pay in modern political violence. And uh, after one of these workshops, the students uh, expressed a desire to communicate with students in Baghdad. And these were students in Brooklyn. And I promised them that I would connect them. Of course, at that moment, I had no idea how to do this. Uh, I began reaching out to everyone I knew um, and asking if they knew any educators in Baghdad that could help me. And through a a chain of connections, uh, starting with an old high school buddy I hadn't heard from in 10 years, ending with a, a taxi driver in Baghdad that someone told me knew everybody in Baghdad, finally made contact uh, with a teacher of teachers in Baghdad who was willing to communicate with Americans, who was willing to talk to her students and see if they would write to Americans. And that's how the one-to-one contact program got started. And so all of my energy then began to be channeled into this communication link between young people in Baghdad and young people in Brooklyn, New York, Um, I thought this would be a fantastic way to let them see each other and let them know about each other. And in fact, it it turned out to be even more wonderful than that. Um, The students, for the most part, did not talk about politics. 
Uh, they talked about uh, music and food and girlfriends and boyfriends. And, hey, you guys can hear Jay-Z in Baghdad. They were astounded that they were so much alike, even as they learned how different they were. And all of them had the same wish for peace. None of them wanted this war. None of them wanted the occupation. And so I became immersed uh, with the one-to-one contact project in Iraq and little by little learned more and more about the innocent civilians in Iraq who are suffering so horribly under the occupation. That was Bruce Wallace of 9-11 Families for Peaceful Tomorrows. Another member of the group, Ann Mulderry, says losing one of her sons, Stephen, on 9-11 helped her get in touch with an activist side of herself from the past. I will say that as far as publicly um, being someone who wanted to join the voices that feel this way, it began for me when I was raising a family. I did have many young children, and I was consumed by that. But I remember reading in The New Yorker a story that told about the morale of the soldiers in Vietnam. It wasn't a story. It was a true reporting. And the destruction of their moral restraints was so shocking to me that while, of course, I mourn the suffering of civilians in war situations, there's no end to that mourning, I was so struck by the fact that our very own young people were being turned into monsters by a terrible situation that they were thrust into unprepared, and that the violence that they viewed every day was turning them into people who had no answer except violence for any problem. And it was then that I joined Pax Christi because the comfort of being with other people who didn't think it was foolish to think that war wasn't the answer was very powerful for me. Just for a moment, can you just say what Pax Christi is for listeners who might not know that? Okay. Well, Pax Christi I came across in the Vietnam War era because they had formed in Europe when Belgians and French people and German people, after World War I, had decided that the war was so terrible, they would work to be certain there was never another. And we know that they weren't successful. And yet, and yet, being among those who worked to avoid war was very important to me. Even if I didn't have absolute confidence that the success would be met, I had to accept the reality that the initial founders of Pax Christi had not succeeded in holding back World War II, but I wanted to be among those who tried. I have heard a theme from the three of you about the need following 9-11 to find community and um, to transform, as Bruce was talking about, his grief into um, more positive um, action. And I know that you have found that with Peaceful Tomorrows. There are other 9-11 family organizations, and it seems to me that... um, Uh, Several of them have different perspectives and uh, different focus. Is Peaceful Tomorrow's uh, stand out in terms of um, being 
mostly different from those organizations. I know there's one of them, 9-11 Families for a Secure America, for example. They seem to focus on what they call the illegal alien problem. Has there been an attempt for Peaceful Tomorrows to outreach to some of these other organizations? Bruce, do you want to respond to that? Can you do that? Yeah, I can talk a little about that. I think in the wake of the murders of 9-11, we found that so many different people were directly affected by this political violence. People of all political sides, people of all religions, people of many, many countries. And out of this rainbow of people have formed alliances amongst small groups of them who feel kinship in different ways. And if we think about responses, there there are an infinite number of responses to such a tragedy. And so people have clumped together in like-minded groups. Uh, we have worked with other groups. We worked uh, very closely with uh, the people who were working for the, the safety and health uh, concerns of the workers. Uh, there are, in fact, groups who disagree with what we're doing. Um, but I think all of these responses are real. And I think that Peaceful Tomorrows is different in that its focus is on innocent civilians caught in the hell of political violence. Our focus has always been about innocent civilians. And most of our work has had to do with people. You know, one of the first things that happened when Peaceful Tomorrows was formed was that it was visited by a group of people from Japan the Hibakusha, who were survivors of Nagasaki and Hiroshima. And they came only to offer their warmth, to offer their hugs, and to offer their acknowledgement of our loss. And I think we began to realize that around the world, there are other groups of people who have also, in response to political violence, turned to peaceful paths, and that is what we focus on at Peaceful Tomorrows, and that's what makes us stand out. Uh, We don't advocate for particular candidates. We educate. We try to tell people um, what are the consequences of choosing violence in, in response to situations around the world. This has been our focus. Um... We have lobbied in Congress. We have been very supportive of marches that seek to end violence. And so being active with the word peace as part of everything we do, with the word civilians as part of everything we do, has uh, made us a little bit different from these other organizations. How many families or how many individuals are involved with um, or members of Peaceful Tomorrows? We have about 230 family members, and we have about 4,000 supporters of our work, um, people who have contacted us, people who have donated and supported our work financially and otherwise, and people who understand the commitment of people who have suffered directly. Um, to work for peace. If I could say about the other 9-11 family groups, we very much 
respect all the 9-11 family groups, and we very much expect that there are differences with some of them. And when we just try to work for what we believe is right and never, never accuse other family members of, of having, you know, an incorrect response. Um, but I would like to share a very personal experience. After I had testified uh, for the defense team in the Musawi case, I went to an open meeting of all 9-11 family members here in Boston, where, of course, so many people were affected because the planes left from Boston. And I spoke to a woman who just could not believe that there were any family members who were not seeking this, the death penalty in the Musawi case. And after three of us who had testified for the defense um, were introduced to the group and spoke and, and spoke from, you know, our own personal commitment to, to believing in the abolition of the death penalty and believing in not wanting more violence to be committed in our names, this woman came over to me and she said, you know, I have been carrying so much anger and rage about my daughter's murder. I just needed something to happen. But now I'm understanding that if he had been killed, I would not have my daughter back. And I just, I felt that so much about how we respond to violence and tragedy changes over time and can develop over time. And I think I look back on that moment and that encounter with this woman as one of the real joys of having been involved with with Peaceful Tomorrows and having gotten in, into this community of people that could support me and, and give me courage to do what I thought was right. So I've seen people change, and that gives me great hope. You're listening to Peace Talks Radio. This and other programs in our series are available to hear online at peacetalksradio.com. We'll have more with our guests Ann Mulderry, Bruce Wallace, and Terry Lynn Rockefeller in a moment. Each will remember how they learned of the loss of their loved one on September 11th and a little bit about how they like to recall that special person all right after this break. listening to Peace Talks Radio, the series on peacemaking and nonviolent solutions to conflict. I'm Paul Ingalls. The organization 9-11 Families for Peaceful Tomorrows is in our spotlight today. Included in its seven-point purpose statement is this, to promote dialogue on alternatives to war, while educating and raising the consciousness of the public on issues of war, peace, and the underlying causes of terrorism. Our guests are Ann Mulderry, Bruce Wallace, and Terry K. Rockefeller. 
all members of 9-11 Families for Peaceful Tomorrows, all lost family members on 9-11. Carol Boss continues our conversation. I want you now to have the opportunity to remember Stephen, Laura, and Mitch, your family members who you lost on September 11th. And Mulderry, if you can talk to us about Stephen, if you can tell us where he was that day, how you got that news. Well, that day he was in his office, and it was on the 89th floor of the South Tower. His sister was working across the street, really, in the World Financial Center. And as they did, their eight children grew up together, three sisters and five brothers, and five of them were living in New York City on that date. And they were close, and the ones in Boston, too. They, were, they are a close bunch. And the daughter, Amy, and Stephen were on the phone, and Stephen said, Oh, Amy, a plane has gone into the building next door, the North Tower. And his desk opened at 9 o'clock. He was in the financial markets. And at 9 o'clock, his very busy day began. And then it ended at 5 when the, the markets closed. So he got off the phone because this was shortly before 9, of course, when the first plane hit. And he thought a terrible thing had happened, but no one, I don't think, thought that there was going to be a second. And he was then talking to his brother, Peter, and he got off the phone again. Well, the second plane did hit, and Stephen called Peter. And Peter said, thank God you're out. Thank God you're out. And Stephen said, no, I'm not, Peter. We're in a conference room, and I called to say goodbye, and I love you, brother. And Peter said, don't hang up, don't hang up. And Stephen said, we're sharing a phone, and I have to pass it to the next person. I love you, brother. And, of course, those gathered in that room, there were 18, we think, died together. It has been a comfort to me to know that there was a community at the moment of their death, a community that shared the only phone that was working, and that they died in friendship and love, and all of the messages that went from that room, as far as anyone has ever been able to see, were all messages of love, just messages saying, I love you, I'm saying goodbye, men saying goodbye to children, men saying goodbye to wives, Stephen saying goodbye to me on a machine that I came home and found his message. So those are the things that keep me going, that love is the only eternal. And the more that we can manage to love in this life, the better our life will be and the better everyone's life will be. And how would you like Stephen to be remembered? I'd like him to be remembered as a man who loved life and loved people. He loved children. He loved basketball. He loved his brothers and sisters. He loved his friends. And remarkably, you hear these stories over and over again, that the individual who died on September 11th was the family peacemaker, the family joy maker. Stephen could pick us up out of troubles. And when things were headed in a wrong direction, he could take the crowd in the right direction. Uh, it, 
we feel that in Stephen's absence, all of us have had to grow stronger in our joy-making and peacemaking ability because we relied on him maybe a little too much. And it is our duty to keep him alive as the peacemaker and joy-maker that he always was for us for 33 years. Thank you. Thank you, Anne, very, very much. Bruce Wallace, you lost your nephew, Mitch, that day. Uh, Where was he? Well, I didn't know where he was at the beginning of that day. I was uh, working at my desk. My wife was in the shower. I heard a plane fly over very low in the sky, much too low, and then an unmistakable crash. And I shouted to my wife, I think I just heard a plane crash. I'm taking my camera. I'm going down into the street. Where were you, Bruce? Uh, About five blocks north of uh, World Trade Center, of Ground Zero. And I took my camera and ran down to the street and uh, started taking pictures of this burning building. Um, Still taking pictures when the, the second plane hit the second tower, the North Tower. And I kept taking pictures until I realized I had just taken a picture of a woman who's had leaped from one of the higher floors. And I guess I went into shock at that point. I was frozen in my spot. Um, I couldn't hear anything. Everything started to be in slow motion. People were streaming past me, tears in their eyes. Um, my wife actually came down to grab me from that place and drag me away. And as we left, uh, the towers fell, and, and we uh, walked to Brooklyn to, to be with uh, my sons who lived there at the time. And it wasn't until later when I called my brother that I found out that my nephew, Mitch Wallace, uh, who was a Supreme Court officer, uh, was missing. He was on his way to work with two fellow officers uh, when the first plane struck. And uh, he had been trained as an EMT, an emergency medical service technician, always had his kit with him always uh, was a man uh, concerned with helping other people, with saving other people. He'd been twice decorated before that for saving people's lives in the street uh, because he did have his kit with him all the time. He was always ready to help. And he went with his two fellow officers to Ground Zero. They were assigned to a uh, fire company and assigned to uh, pull wounded people from the basement of the South Tower. And uh, he had just gone in for another uh, run down into the basement uh, when the South Tower collapsed on him. Uh, At the end of the day, uh, my brother had heard no positive news. Uh, Mitch was just listed as missing. And uh, we spent the next days going from hospital to hospital uh, to the emergency services centers that were set up trying to find news of Mitch. Um, But uh, we never saw him again. They never recovered his body. Um, He was an amazing guy. He... uh, it took him quite a while to find himself. He bounced from job to job until he uh, found this calling to be a, an EMT, an emergency medical tech. And that job was not really suited to him either because he felt so much responsibility 
for the people that he saved. He would come and visit them in the hospital. He would call them at home. It got to be too much. And then took uh, the police department test and uh, was wonderfully assigned to the Supreme Court uh, where he became one of the officers who guard the courts, who guard our freedoms, who guard our very basic liberties. And this was a joy to him, a small family of court officers uh, together serving their community. Um, he took responsibility. Uh, and my work is dedicated to his life and based on responsibility. And uh, now I spend my time full-time. I'm retired now. But I spend my full time trying to talk to Americans about the responsibility that each of us as individuals has to each individual citizen of Iraq. We created a hell for them. We had hell here one day, and we created that hell for them that goes on every day of their lives. And it's our responsibility. We broke it, and we have to fix it. Okay, let, thank you. Thank you, Bruce, very much. Terry Rockefeller, where was your sister Laura that day? My sister uh, was an actress and a singer, and um, she pieced together a living uh, in New York doing what she loved, uh, which was being on stage and making music and helping friends and, and other people create, you know, wonderful, wonderful art. And, uh, but in, in the meantime, she, she had to have a day job and she picked up, um, work doing, helping to run conferences, um, many of them, uh, for financial organizations and, uh, I actually had no idea where she was that day. She had called me on Sunday uh, before September 11th and planned a trip up to visit our family in Massachusetts. She was going to see her two nieces and my husband and me. Um, and all I knew is that she had one of her day jobs that she took to earn a lot of money um, that helped her pay the rent so that, you know, the life of an actress was was possible in Manhattan. Um when I heard that the planes had hit the World Trade Center, I um, I was on my way to work, and I did a big U-turn, and I went home and uh, turned on the television, told my husband what I'd heard, and we began watching it. And I immediately picked up the telephone, and I called my sister, and I got no answer. And I, of course, knew that that meant that she was out walking her dog. She lived on the Upper West Side, and she usually started the day with a nice long walk in the park with her dog. And then I called my best friend and found out that she was okay. And then I called my parents and told them what I'd learned. And um, and then I watched some more of the unfolding horror on television. And then I called my sister again at about 11 o'clock. And I still didn't get an answer. And I thought that was an awfully long walk to take a dog on. And um, But I still had no idea that she would have been anywhere near the World Trade Center. It just wasn't the kind of place she went. Um, and it was about 3 o'clock in the afternoon when her friends called to say that they um, were pretty sure that the conference that she was going to be helping to run that day would had been held at the World Trade Center. And I knew the name of the companies. 
that she worked for, and they they told me the the company that they thought she was working for that day, and they're a company based in London, so I started making overseas calls to London. And I was told that, yes, there had been a conference on the 106th floor of the North Tower, which, of course, was the first tower that was hit. Um, but by then, it was 3 o'clock in the afternoon. We'd seen the towers come down, and I'd never heard anything from her. Um, but when I think about what she did with her life, I think about how much joy and um, pleasure she got out of music and theater and singing, and she had just a gorgeous smile, and she had a really, really compelling laugh. And um, the work she did that she loved brought her such pleasure, and I knew that she was there that day in order to make that life that she loved possible. One of the amazing things that happened is when I joined September 11th Families for Peaceful Tomorrows, the first person I met was Colleen Kelly. And um, I was telling her about Laura, and I was telling her how surprising it was that that Laura had been in the World Trade Center because she didn't work there. And Colleen looked at me and said, well, her brother had been at a conference on the 106th floor of the World Trade Center, and he wasn't normally there either. And then I just said, well, that's the conference my sister was working at. And it was, um, it was, there was just an amazing experience to realize that I had been brought together with this member of September 11th families, brought together with this member of Peaceful Tomorrows, and to know that her brother and my sister had died together, um, and that that had brought us together, and that out of that would come this search for ways to make peace. That's Terry K. Rockefeller. We also heard from Bruce Wallace and Ann Mulderry of 9-11 Families for Peaceful Tomorrows. We've posted links to their website and other resources you might be interested in checking out at our website, peacetalksradio.com. That's peacetalksradio.com, where you can hear this program again and all the programs in our series. This is also where you can read partial transcripts, order CDs, sign up for a monthly newsletter, or subscribe to our podcast. And lastly, but importantly, it's also where you can go to make a contribution to our nonprofit organization that's responsible for Peace Talks Radio. Your financial contribution in any amount really helps us continue to protect some airspace and web space for talk about peacemaking and nonviolent solutions to conflict. So help if you can. Visit peacetalksradio.com. We also get support from the McCune Charitable Foundation of New Mexico, the Oppenheimer Brothers Foundation, the Peace Tales CD Project, and KUNM at the University of New Mexico. Production help this time from WAMC in Albany, WGBH in Boston, and the Radio Foundation in New York City. Our theme music was written and performed by Allie Adelman. For Carol Boss, I'm Paul Ingalls. Thanks for listening.